Hello and welcome back to Principles of Environmental Toxicology. Well, students taking this course, uh, perhaps this is the first course in toxicology and perhaps uh, maybe the first of many courses in related areas of pharmacology and toxicology that you will take. But perhaps uh, you get a realization that the natural world around us uh, is broadly toxic. Uh, in that uh, organisms, uh, humans, uh, the other organisms in nature, have to have developed a response to this broadly toxic environment in the natural world and also in the synthetic world that we have created. In today's lecture, what we're going to do, and I've kind of subtitled this perhaps on the website as uh, the, the, the white hats and the black hats of, of cowboy lore uh, fighting back uh, uh, amongst themselves. Uh, today's lecture, Biotransformation and Elimination of Toxicants, is the first one where we've introduced how the organism has the chemical or biochemical ability to biotransform some of these chemical toxins and toxicants and aid in their elimination. Uh, this is a little bit uh, uh, high-end in terms of chemistry, biochemistry. Those of you that are weaker in these fields uh, will be a, perhaps a little bit strained. There's enough discussion in the used textbook uh, to kind of bring you along and hopefully the lecture will kind of give you the requisite was it basis to understand at least the basic principles of biotransformation and elimination. Our learning objectives here today, what I'd like you to do is to be able to explain the role of this biotransformation in toxicokinetics. So how, in fact, does biotransformation actually aid in relieving us from the potential toxic end effects of these chemical compounds? You'll need to be able to describe how biotransformation facilitates elimination of toxicants. We've introduced this concept of grease to salt that highly polar uh, compounds uh, that are water soluble are typically able to be eliminated more rapidly, primarily through the urine stream. We'll try to as well have you distinguish between phase one and phase two reactions. These are broad categories of reactions. We'll show you how these in fact are the key components in metabolism that aid in elimination. We'll try to define bioactivation, or another word for that is toxication. And this is a curious byproduct of the chemistry and biochemistry that happens in biotransformation, where in fact these pathways of metabolism sometimes activate a chemical compound to increase its toxicity. So a chemical that may in and of itself be mildly reactive typically or mildly toxic, uh, gets activated, uh, it becomes very reactive, and sometimes this causes an increase in the toxicity of the compound due to its initial steps in this biotransformation process. We'll try as well to identify some of the tissues and factors involved in biotransformation. We'll have you summarize the role of elimination in toxicokinetics. If we talk about half-life removals, plasma concentrations, all of these over time have to do with our ability to metabolize and set up for elimination these initial chemicals as toxicants. We're also going to want to have you describe the processes that occur 
in the kidney, the liver, and the lung that are related to the elimination of toxicants. Uh, this is a very basic uh, sort of anatomy and physiology description, but in toxicology, these organs, and especially kidney and liver, are organs that uh, perhaps uh, it is best to have a, a more in-depth understanding relative to, for example, muscular movement in anatomy and physiology class. Well, metabolism is a great place to start, and metabolism we can think of as the sum of the biochemical reactions that occur to a molecule within the body. Now, we have metabolism because we need to create energy, we need to uh, sustain all the building blocks and the molecules of life for organismal development. We've defined previously that anabolism is the build-up, whereas catabolism is, uh, in fact, the breakdown of products. And so we start off, for example, with monomers, and we build up polymers in an anabolic sort of process. The catabolic processes break those uh, larger molecules down, uh, chew them up enzymatically, chemically, biochemically, uh, and sometimes this aids in their elimination but it also can aid in, for example, the use of amino acids from uh, proteins consumed in the diet. Uh, where this occurs, it's primarily in the cytoplasm or at specific cellular organelles, and in fact, uh, the storage of uh, uh, chemicals uh, helps uh, the, in the ability to biotransform uh, or at least affects the ability of the organism to biotransform and eliminate these toxic compounds. We've discussed uh, perhaps more than, than you'd like to hear um, how toxicants can be sequestered in bone and in lipid for, for uh, lipid-soluble uh, contaminants. Uh, in fact, uh, storage affects this because it sequesters them away from the metabolic pathways. And so, for example, uh, individuals uh, that go through dramatic, rapid weight loss, where they have a significant weight loss, uh, loss of adipose tissue in a short amount of time, do have the potential to be releasing fairly high levels of adipose stored toxicants that uh, would need them to be uh, biotransformed by the liver and set up for elimination. And yes, there probably can be some low-level toxicosis associated or toxic stress associated with rapid weight loss. In the same way, we've seen that episode uh, in terms of a clinical case study of Graves' disease causing bone loss and the release of stored lead residues in bone in that particular case study. In terms of biotransformation, we can define this as the process that changes substances from hydrophobic to hydrophilic. And this is in order to aid in elimination. We referred to this several times in, in the course of the, uh, the uh, principles of environmental toxicology as a transformation of grease to salt. Greasy hydrophobic uh, molecules being transformed or biotransformed into salty or highly polar hydrophilic molecules, one that are water-soluble to aid in elimination. Now, does this define all of the possible pathways of metabolism and biotransformation? No, but this is a major uh, pathway of biotransformation. We need to do this because hydrophilic uh, molecules are less able to cross various cellular membranes, and therefore they are less fluid filterable. And this is going to be a part of kidney physiology that we'll discuss here today. 
The major elimination routes that happen after biotransformation include fecal elimination. And this is through passing through uh, assisted passage uh, via the bile ducts and uh, into the gastrointestinal tract for fecal elimination and also through the kidneys for discharge in the urine stream. We have to be aware that in toxicokinetics, we're talking about the removal or decrease of the concentration of a toxicant once inside the organism. And there are several different characteristics of these processes, such as rate of decay uh, and half-life. Uh, in the same way, we looked at half-life in uh, freshman chemistry chemical reactions. We can look at half-life in terms of removal half-lifes of toxicants and look at those that are metabolized, for example, with uh, very short half-lives, the, the time it takes to achieve a, uh, one half of the original concentration. Those, with, those toxicants with very short half-lives are going to be uh, ones that are metabolized and eliminated very rapidly as opposed to longer half-lives, which indicate that the metabolism takes a significant amount of time. Now, in terms of broad categories of biotransformation reactions, we group these as phase one and phase two. Phase one is a functional group modification, and so what we're doing is reactive organic chemistry at a particular functional group of a small molecule toxicant. In phase two, what we do, and sometimes these follow one, then two, and we'll see this in a, in a diagram here in a moment. Um, in phase two, we have a conjugation reaction. Conjugation reaction is a reaction that takes two larger molecules and binds them together or conjugates them. Typically, the molecule that we are binding to the toxicant is a very polar a hydrophilic molecule, a sugar molecule, for example, or a sulfate uh, moiety that we can attach to this as a side group to enhance the polarity, enhance the solubility of the toxicant. The goal of phase one, phase two biotransformation, again, is to produce these water-soluble metabolites to aid in their elimination. Now, this is not just biotransformation for detoxification or limiting the potential for toxicosis. This same process is actually uh, uh, available to, in normal physiology to activate uh, natural and endogenous compounds in our diet for normal function, okay? So these same sorts of biotransformation reactions allow the setup, the metabolic setup, whether it be anabolic or catabolic setup, of all of the starting materials that we need to develop energy, to develop uh, nutrients, to develop various molecules of life in the organism. Now we've introduced that some compounds, because biotransformation has to do with thermodynamics and kinetics. If you remember from freshman chemistry, thermodynamics tells us if a certain reaction can happen, uh, kinetics tells us how fast it will happen. Just because we have good thermodynamics doesn't mean that perhaps our bodies have geological time to undergo a reaction that in fact has extraordinarily slow kinetics. But some compounds will in fact in this biotransformation pathway undergo, because of thermodynamics and because of kinetics, a bioactivation uh, reaction. 
And this chemistry is not necessarily smart. It's just looking at electrons and energy and thermodynamics and the nature of the beast. And the beast is chemistry. Uh, sometimes it's blind to the quality of the product. Sometimes the quality of the metabolic product is sufficiently degraded with respect to its potential toxicity. Degraded meaning that it is toxicity enhanced. The term is bioactivation. So in our biology, we have activated, uh, again, a, a lowly or moderately toxic compound into a compound that is higher toxicity. Now, in terms of all of the myriad of results of biotransformation, they, they can increase toxicity, uh, as we've just introduced, via a toxic metabolite. Uh, we would like that it decreases toxicity via the metabolism of the toxic parent compounds. And this is more typical when we are talking about biotransformation. As well, we can change or slightly modify a molecule, uh, and especially a molecule that is, uh, has perhaps multiple active sites. We can modify that slightly through biotransformation, but have very limited or no effect on the overall toxicity of the parent chemical. We can also, through biotransformation, uh, find that uh, uh, we are enabled to metabolize the endogenous compounds uh, in our body uh, that are produced by various enzymatic processes uh, that are uh, yielded to us uh, via our diet uh, and other sorts of exposures. And again, the metabolic products are often those starting products in terms of the survival of the organism. Now, this cartoon gives you uh, at least a, a, a geographical uh, representation of the major categories and reactions in biotransformation. Uh, you can see that in phase one, we can group uh, the chemical reactions of oxidation or reduction or hydrolysis, these uh, organic chemical uh, reactions, these metabolic reactions, to, uh, that in some cases are sufficient to increase the polarity in and of itself to aid in elimination. Some of these actually set up different functional groups for a secondary reaction or a phase two reaction where there is a conjugation synthesis. Again, conjugation being the joining of two molecules. These typically yield very polar metabolites. One of the things that you should gain a respect for is because we have different reactive pathways, even within phase one, oxidation, reduction, hydrolysis, and then in phase two as well, in terms of the potential to join on different functional groups or different uh, conjugated uh, molecules, that because of this variability, we can actually have one, two, three, four, five different metabolic products, okay, in various concentrations. And so there are often multiple pathways that we find uh, in normal biotransformation metabolism. In terms of the uh, enzymes of biotransformation, these are the tools that allow these reactions to happen. Uh, enzymes don't get consumed. Uh, they assist in the reaction. In terms of phase one enzymes for oxidation, this is the most important pathway in toxicology. Oxidation adds an oxygen. It removes a hydrogen uh, or it increases valence. 
some of the enzymes involved, the biochemical uh, molecules, the biochemicals involved in phase one reactions include cytochrome P450, uh, mixed function oxidases or MFOs, various uh, specialty uh, enzymes such as alcohol dehydrogenase, important uh, after you have that next beer, um, various oxidases and others. Enzymes often uh, carry the name ASE at the end of the name uh, with the functionality of the enzyme at the beginning. So an oxidase is an enzyme that is involved in oxidation, just as a reductase is involved in reduction. Reduction is less important in biotransformation for toxicology. In uh, reduction, we remove an oxygen or add a hydrogen, and we would decrease, therefore, the valence. We also have uh, enzymatic biotransformation reactions that are, uh, have an endpoint of hydrolysis, and hydrolysis is simply involving the addition of a water molecule uh, in a reactive sequence uh, to a molecule. Various enzymes uh, perform this function. Uh, they're referred to as esterases, phosphatases, and others. And so there are uh, multiple levels of potential phase one uh, uh, reactions. Each one has an enzymatic uh, reactive pathway. Some of these phase one reactions, and this is a, a table from the used textbook. Uh, you can see an N oxidation of an amine, uh, an S oxidation, a carbonyl reduction to an alcohol, ester hydrolysis, desulfuration, uh, dehydrogenation uh, to a, a carbonyl. All of these are potential phase one uh, metabolic pathways involved in biotransformation. In phase two, we have, again, enzymes that assist in the reaction, but we have a different player because we need that cofactor, that other molecule, as well as the enzyme to affect uh, the conjugation that we call phase two. Uh, what happens in a phase two biotransformation is that we have an enzyme, typically a transferase enzyme, that transfers this conjugation molecule conjugate uh, to the parent toxicant. Uh, the enzyme catalyzes it. The cofactor is a molecule that donates the conjugating group. Uh, these uh, cofactors sometimes will include glucuronic acid, glutathione, sulfate, uh, acetyl groups, methyl groups. The end product of a phase two biotransformation reaction is to increase the molecular size, and sometimes this is a substantial increase in overall molecular weight and size and also to increase the polarity to add in its water solubility and therefore its potential to be excreted. Give you an idea of what phase two cofactors look like. This is glutathione. Uh, you can see that glutathione, in fact, is a fairly large molecule. Uh, it's a shuttle or a transport molecule because, in fact, glutathione in a phase two reaction is just uh, donating this uh, sulfhydryl group here. Uh, and so all of this apparatus, as you'll see quite often in these cofactors, are support to be able to position uh, the uh, chemical in the right reactive sequence in a pyotransformation reaction. This is acetyl coenzyme A, another uh, phase two cofactor. And again, this molecular apparatus of acetyl coenzyme A uh, is uh, uh, a part of the transformation, but in fact, the change 
the biotransformation point is just this uh, group down here starting at the sulfur and so this uh, acetyl group uh, is allowed to be added to the parent toxicant again to increase its polarity and its molecular size. This is uh, PAPS, uh, phosphoadenosine, phosphosulfate, uh, and again, a lot of molecular machinery over here that you can see. The idea is to donate this uh, sulfate group here, so PAPS donates uh, sulfate to a molecule, again, enhancing polarity and molecular size. Another cofactor, UDPGA, uridine-5-diphosphoglucuronic acid. Uh, it's donating a sugar here, uh, down here, so we see uh, a glucose-type sugar. Uh, the molecular apparatus here on this side of the highlighted oxygen is the delivery mechanism within that cofactor. Give you an idea of how this works in the whole orchestra, the symphony of biotransformation uh, for phase one and phase two. Uh, this is benzene metabolism. Benzene is a, a known carcinogen, and there's a reason why it's a carcinogen. And we didn't know that when I was uh, a sophomore organic chemistry major, when we would wash our glassware and dishes in buckets of benzene, putting our hands in that benzene. Uh, what we've come to learn about benzene uh, has uh, uh, concerned many in terms of its role of, uh, uh, in various cancers and, uh, uh, such as leukemia and potential exposure of individuals that work in the petroleum hydrocarbon industries. So in benzene, the initial steps, we have an epoxidation. So this is a phase one reaction. The enzyme is cytochrome P450, and so we get this toxic epoxide. And so in the initial step, a biotransformation of benzene, we have a toxication or, or a bioactivation. And in fact, it's this reactivity that many suggest is a part of the carcinogenic nature of benzene. And to give you an idea of the multiple pathways, since we have this reactive metabolite, uh, it can actually uh, combine to become a phenol, get acted on by uh, UDP and glutathione uh, transferase, to become a glucuronide molecule. Uh, fairly large uh, sugar is added onto this, uh, creating a highly polar molecule from an initial starting product uh, reactant, excuse me, a toxicant uh, that is nonpolar. Uh, with sulfur transferase and PAPS as a cofactor, uh, we can see that we add a sulfate group on here, again, enhancing polarity and molecular size. In this particular case, uh, we can have a epoxide hydratase enzymatic reaction, uh, creating a dihydrodiol, uh, again, uh, enhanced uh, polarity, enhanced water solubility. In this particular direction, we have a glutathione transferase enzyme and glutathione uh, acting to add glutathione uh, on this uh, particular molecule, again, also enhancing in the conjugate uh, molecular size, molecular weight, and uh, polarity, and therefore uh, water solubility. This also gives you an idea of if an animal, uh, test animal, is dosed with uh, uh, benzene, the, the array of potential metabolites, if we count them off, one, two, three, four metabolites that can be identified uh, primarily in the urine stream, sometimes in the breath, sometimes in the fecal matter. We sometimes do these analyses by doing radio labeled 
chemical compounds like radio-labeled benzene, radio-labeling acts to uh, enhance detectability of metabolites. What we try and do in these metabolic studies is examine the animal's uh, elimination tracks to identify the total toxic residue, the TTR. The total toxic residue hopefully is greater than 80% recovery of the initial uh, radio-labeled elements uh, in the test compound. And so this aids in identifying the uh, uh, metabolic products from any sort of other metabolic byproducts from normal, natural, non-biotransformation uh, processes of the dosed toxicant. For aniline, uh, it's oxidized as another alternative biotransformation example. It is oxidized by cytochrome P450, and so you get this N-hydroxylation. This, again, sets this up. This is a more reactive functional group. It sets it up for a phase two conjugation, as an example. We can see dialkylation in this particular case, dimethylpropylamine acted on by cytochrome P450, and so we're oxidizing uh, this particular propylamine group, uh, and it becomes a methylpropylamine and, uh, with an, uh, an acetaldehyde. This is a more reactive group, again, set up for phase two conjugation on the pathway of phase one, phase two biotransformation. One of the byproducts of uh, phase one oxidation uh, and reduction can be uh, the uh, uh, generation of free radicals. Free radicals are reactive. Uh, they can uh, be reactive in terms of cell wall destruction. In our next lecture, what we will talk about is oxidative stress, uh, the ability of uh, free radicals generated, for example, by normal respiratory processes to enable a uh, chain reaction, uh, reactive sequence that is extremely di destructive to tissues uh, and uh, organs and organelles in the body. In this particular case, we have tetrachloromethane acted on by NADH, cytochrome P450, and reductase. One of the byproducts generated in this metabolic cycle is a toxic free radical. That free radical can react uh, with our normal uh, oxidative stress management system. One of the ways we do that is a reaction with glutathione. Give you a case study here of a uh, biotransformation uh, metabolic uh, interruption. This case study deals with uh, the appearance of fluoral citrate and its disruption of the Krebs cycle. Uh, as it turns out, fluoral citrate is a natural compound. Uh, it's typically available in, in alkaline soils. In Australia, there's a relationship of fluoral citrate, which is found in legume pasture plants, gastrolobium and oxylobium. Sometimes the concentrations in the leaf can be as high as two and a half uh, grams per kilogram. This is a very high concentration uh, chemical. It's highly lethal. Uh, its mammalian lethality is one milligram per uh, 1,080 uh, kilogram animal is the way that worked out. And the reason I put it that way is this chemical compound, because of its high lethality, was often referred to as compound 1080. It was actively used as uh, rodenticide and as a bait material, for example, for rats or gophers or ground squirrels. Uh, in the United States, it was banned in the late 80s because of non-target species effects. In fact, uh, typically what would happen is predatory birds would see an animal that had been intoxicated uh, by this uh, uh, fairly violent and highly lethal poison. 
the secondary toxicosis would occur when the predatory bird would actually feed from the dead or dying animal. And in fact, uh, there were observations of, of birds uh, being impacted by this in mid-flight after they fly off from perhaps a carrion feeding event uh, and pretty much drop out of the sky. Uh, whether or not that's true or just anecdotal, uh, we don't know, but I have heard that story from reliable sources. In Australia, what we find is uh, an adaptation. Since these plants contain this highly lethal substrate, which I'll show you will interrupt uh, quite well the Krebs cycle for primary energy production, uh, it appears that the uh, rat and gray kangaroo of Western Australia have evolved uh, resistance. This is where this plant uh, is a, has a uh, dominant role in the local plant ecosystem. And they do this uh, resistance by a uh, in vivo defluorination process with glutathione. Well, in terms of just animal management, it was a harsh discovery to find out in, in uh, typical wildlife management activities of relocating animals from one area to another in some areas of, uh, of uh, Australia. The kangaroo is uh, a bit of a nuisance animal. Uh, they found that uh, some of these animals that were relocated uh, into Western Australia were not, uh, had not evolved this resistance and in fact succumbed to the toxicosis of this very highly toxic uh, and very violent uh, poison. How this happens and uh, how it's used in a particular uh, rodenticide, we actually back it up not from fluoro citrate, uh, we actually use the uh, body's own chemistry to take fluoroacetate, which is the chemical compound that is used in 1080 and as a rodenticide. Um, Coacetyl uh, A um, actually uh, creates a fluoroacetyl-CoA uh, in terms of uh, biosynthesis. And so the initial steps of uh, uh, biotransformation actually creates this fluoroacetyl-CoA. Uh, this fluoroacetyl-CoA uh, actually uh, creates, uh, instead of citrate, uh, uh, a fluorocitrate molecule. Uh, and uh, this is the problem, in fact, uh, this non-reactivity of this halogenated uh, side chain here is what causes uh, the disruption of the Krebs cycle. It causes the disruption of the Krebs cycle because as we go from a transformation from oxaloacetate uh, into uh, citrate, uh, we instead form this fluorocitrate molecule when we have this fluoroacetyl-CoA uh, enzyme being formed, uh, or uh, cofactor being formed. Um, and in fact, uh, this then can't be acted on by aconitase uh, to form cis-aconitate in the Krebs cycle. And again, the Krebs cycle, a uh, critical uh, part of mitochondrial energy production. Without energy, the cell dies uh, because of transport problems in terms of uh, cellular processes. Uh, this starts a cellular death and uh, leads to a very rapid and, uh, in many cases, very violent uh, death uh, of the organism. Another toxin, uh, this is a natural toxin, deoxynivalenol. Uh, it also has a common name of vomitoxin. Uh, vomitoxin probably came from uh, the uh, uh, purgative uh, aspects uh, that uh, this particular uh, mold toxin has in terms of animals that eat it. 
Um, it's a Fusarian trichothecene. Uh, this is a mycotoxin or a, a toxin from mold that is found on corn and barley, for example. Uh, there are uh, typically several large-scale fusarium outbreaks uh, globally, uh, sometimes uh, with lethality. Uh, this is a part of uh, agriculture, a part of grain production. Typically, uh, moldy grain happens when uh, environmental conditions uh, uh, for mold growth, which are typically uh, can be, depending upon the mold, typically moist, and it can range from cool to, to hot conditions, depending upon the mold. Uh, what we find is in uh, the developed world is that there are a significant amount of uh, oversight in terms of preventing mold growth uh, on uh, grains. But sometimes in rural communities or in underdeveloped countries, uh, uh, moldy food is better than no food. And sometimes uh, we have the uh, onset of human toxicosis from these mycotoxins. Uh, this particular mycotoxin uh, has a reactive uh, epoxide ring. In terms of the early stages of biotransformation, because we have a reactive group, uh, we actually form uh, this uh, carbon uh, compound uh, and uh, reduce this particular uh, chemical because it is so reactive. Another mycotoxin is aflatoxin B1. Aflatoxin B1 comes to us from the aspergillus mycotoxin. It's found on corn, uh, peanuts, and cottonseed. Uh, aspergillus and aflatoxin are easy to identify because aflatoxin fluoresces, and so uh, there are screening methods. Uh, your peanut butter is actually, uh, the commercially bought peanut butter is screened for aflatoxin residues because aflatoxin is a carcinogen. Uh, it's a naturally occurring carcinogen. It has uh, a uh, potential to form a DNA adduct, and uh, scientists think that this is the mode of carcinogenesis for this particular chemical compound. It does have the potential for acute uh, toxicity as well. When we do some analyses, and we've, we've talked about uh, metabolism and how we study metabolism, in that sometimes we will take a chemical compound and do an in vitro analysis of its metabolic uh, pathways. And the way we do this is usually with isolated rat hepatocytes. And so, for example, uh, this data, and I'm not sure exactly where this came from, but this might have come from an in vitro or a petri dish test tube type study, where this chemical compound, aflatoxin B1, uh, was actually put into a petri dish with isolated rat hepatocytes and cultured. And then the uh, scientists would look via mass spectrometry, typically, for the various aflatoxin metabolites. This one is Q1. There's a whole range of potential met uh, metabolites uh, in aflatoxin. I think they number about 15 or 20 uh, total. Uh, but here you can see that uh, the results of biotransformation in this particular experiment uh, puts a uh, hydroxyl group on here, again, enhancing the polarity, enhancing the ability for elimination of this compound. Benzopyrene is the chemical of concern when you hear warnings about consuming too much barbecued meat, uh, barbecue that we all love uh, in the summertime and in our tailgate parties. 
Uh, benzopyrene is a polyaromatic hydrocarbon, often referred to as PAHs, uh, typically highly nonpolar assembly of benzene rings here. Uh, it is an environmental carcinogen. It comes to us not only through barbecued food, but also through uh, combustion of fuels, petroleum hydrocarbons, uh, diesel fuels, coal fuels. Typically, again, we study these things with cell cultures from rodents, fish, and humans. What we find is that the pathway uh, is not particularly species-specific, uh, that we find these benzopyrenes uh, actually uh, uh, developed with a, uh, in terms of phase one, phase two biotransformation. They are conjugated with a sulfate or a glucuronic acid. This molecule on the left, the benzopyrene, uh, being a very nonpolar molecule with a glucuronic acid attached to it, highly polar and more water soluble. Let's transfer a little bit here. We've talked a lot about biotransformation related to organic molecules. Let's use a few slides to go back and talk about uh, a recurring theme that we'll use as a case study and example in principles of environmental toxicology, and that being heavy metal toxicity associated with lead. Uh, with lead, we find that, uh, as we have discussed before, that it's absorbed via uh, active transport calcium channels as a divalent uh, ion. Uh, in terms of lead and lead exposure, remember that lead can be presented to us in our environment and in our diet in many different forms as lead metal, lead oxides, lead salts. Typically, in terms of a toxicology concern, we are most concerned with highly soluble lead salts. These divalent ions are capable of reacting with a wide variety of binding sites. Uh, because of the uh, density of lead, we have the potential for protein precipitation. When a protein, for example, uh, in your plasma is precipitated, it no longer can do what it needs to do, whether that be a transport or enzymatic or hormonal function. Uh, so the specific toxic effect depends upon uh, reactions with the various uh, ligands. Uh, ligands will bind, uh, so we have anionic ligands that will bind with the cationic lead. Sometimes those ligands are essential uh, in terms of fundamental processes for the living system. Some of these uh, ligands uh, form with sulfhydryl groups, so we actually have uh, some uh, chemicals, uh, some, excuse me, some proteins, metallothionine, for example, with sulfhydryl groups that aid in the elimination of uh, heavy metals. Uh, but sometimes these groups are associated with proteins or enzymes that are destined or tracked to another important physiological processes. And this, in fact, would interrupt or disrupt uh, those processes and lead to potential toxicosis. The other reactive pathways that uh, lead can take is reaction with amino groups, phosphate groups. Lead phosphate or pyrophosphate uh, is a highly, highly thermodynamically stable uh, chemical. Uh, if we have reactive phosphate groups on molecules, uh, we can uh, interrupt that with uh, lead reaction in adsorption or co-precipitation. Imidazole and hydroxyl groups are also reactive uh, groups of various enzymes and essential proteins that may interact with lead. We find that the sensitivity of a particular system and its degree of interference uh, will determine some of the clinical effects. 
we find that in lead uh, exposure that uh, digestion and respiration uh, and especially the action or activity of, for example, uh, stomach acids uh, can lead to absorption. In terms of heavy metal toxicity, the liver is the primary organ for detoxification, and that's typically by uh, chelating and shuttling it away. Um, we find that the kidney does have the potential to excrete uh, subclinical uh, levels of heavy metals. As I've said many times, our natural environment is, uh, is uh, rife with uh, potential toxicants. Uh, the soils in many communities are one, two, three, four part per million natural background just because of the natural makeup of the soil. It is not a toxic waste dump, it's just that these natural elements are out there. We worry about them when in industrial processes like mining or uh, leaded gasoline or leaded uh, paint in old houses tend to concentrate this particular heavy metal in a uh, environment, an intimate environment that we are exposed to on a daily basis uh, in our living environment or in our jobs in terms of an occupational exposure. Now in terms of minimizing the effects of heavy metal toxicity such as lead, the antidotes that we use are typically competing ligands. I've put a, the molecular form of EDTA, ethylene diamine tetracetic acid on here. You remember from your freshman chemistry laboratories when you did uh, metal uh, complexation, metal binding with, with uh, copper, uh, perhaps lead and, and many others uh, uh, with EDTA and you formed a precipitant, uh, sometimes colored, sometimes white in the bottom of the test tube. Uh, the idea here is to bind up uh, and therefore decrease the reactivity. This is referred to as uh, chelation therapy when it is used in a clinical setting. We find that metallic lead is uh, absorbed most efficiently uh, by the respiratory tract and so uh, we've introduced uh, here in uh, the course of our discussions of IEUBK and the blood lead uh, model that uh, in fact uh, Household dust is a primary vector, um, perhaps the primary vector in terms of uh, childhood lead exposure. We find that about 10% of ingested lead is absorbed. Uh, we have uh, a term for that, typically it's called bioavailability. Uh, each chemical in each particular uh, manifestation of that chemical, again like lead metal, lead oxide, lead salts, will have a distinct bioavailability. It has a lot to do with its ability to, to pass uh, through uh, various transport barriers, uh, various membranes uh, to hijack the facilitated absorption uh, process, all of these vary on a case-by-case -case basis with the particular heavy metal or the particular toxicant. As we find out, uh, in terms of lead ingestion, uh, the small intestine is where a lot of this happens. Uh, lead salts are soluble in gastric juices, and so they are absorbed fairly directly. It goes from the plasma to the blood cells, has an endpoint in the erythrocytes in terms of its ability to uh, bind with various proteins in the erythrocytes. After oral ingestion, and this is a chronic uh, uh, exposure, we find that about 60% ends up in the bone. Um, we also find it in the hair and teeth. 
about 25% ends up in the liver hepatocytes, about 4% uh, in the renal tubules of the kidney, and we'll talk about that physiological uh, formation here uh, momentarily. And about 3% resides in the intestinal wall. And so there is a distribution of exposed lead, a systemic distribution uh, throughout. But again, the primary storage sites after oral ingestion are in the bones and teeth. It's interesting that uh, in terms of epidemiological, retrospective epidemiological monitoring of childhood uh, lead exposure, that baby teeth have become uh, very valuable. Uh, we lose our baby teeth uh, nominally around six years old. Uh, these uh, are a good record of our exposure uh, in early childhood. And there actually have been studies that have cataloged early childhood lead exposure via baby teeth uh, monitoring and uh, the outcome of the individual in terms of uh, their behavioral dispositions, their success in life, and uh, indicators such as IQ and learning ability. Uh, unfortunately, we find that children exposed to lead uh, in early childhood uh, actually are lower on the scale in terms of all of the behavioral and intelligence uh, performance indicators that we find in life follow-ups uh, after they're, uh, for example, 20 years old. In terms of uh, heavy metal toxicity for lead, some of the endpoints, again, are uh, sulfhydryl enzyme inhibition because uh, the reactivity of lead salts with sulfhydryl groups is significant. Uh, the uh, KSP or solubility product of heavy metals and uh, sulfide type groups is usually uh, on the order of 10 to the minus 20, 10 to the minus 30, meaning that uh, these precipitate out or these react uh, with uh, a high degree of uh, Gibbs free energy or delta G uh, reactivity uh, to produce very thermodynamically stable end products. We find that potassium transport uh, is inhibited in red blood cells. This will lead to anemia. Uh, there can be examples of porphyria or uh, porphyrin-type compounds or hemoglobin molecules uh, in the urine. Uh, we find that uh, lead is excreted uh, chiefly in the feces and the urine. And in terms of clinical therapeutic treatment, we use chelating agents such as calcium EDTA, uh, we can use penicillamine. It's not only an antibiotic, but it's a very good, its mode of action actually in, its, in antibiotic therapy is the, the fact that it's a calcium binding uh, chemical. Uh, if you recall the last time you took a, a beta-lactam drug like a penicillin, uh, on the label they typically advise you not to uh, take this with dairy products. Another chelating reagent is uh, BAL or dimercaptrol. BAL stands for British anti-lewisite. Uh, this was actually used in World War II as an antidote uh, to some of the heavy metal chemical warfare agents uh, that were used uh, in, uh, in World War uh, I. Uh, the chemical compound dimercaptopropanol or BAL uh, I've shown you up here in terms of uh, what it looks like, but you can see these uh, sulfhydryl groups here that are reactive uh, chelating agents in terms of uh, clinical therapies for heavy metal toxicity. 
Next few slides, I'm just going to recount here for you a quick little uh, case study, uh, one of the hazards perhaps of uh, drinking moonshine or, or home distilled uh, uh, alcohol, um, high, high concentration alcohol. Uh, this was a report from uh, CDC's Mortality Morbidity Weekly Report in 1992. Uh, the case study has to do with uh, uh, individuals uh, that were brewing moonshine in some rural Alabama counties in 1991. Eight persons were presented to the hospital. They were diagnosed with elevated blood levels. Uh, nine patients had been uh, also elevated, uh, showing elevated related medical conditions at the hospital related to uh, alcohol and alcoholism. Uh, some of the manifestations uh, included uh, uh, tonic-clonic seizures, microcytic anemia, um, encephalopathy, uh, which is a uh, degradation of brain tissue, uh, extreme uh, extremity weakness uh, in the upper uh, extremities, and abdominal colic. The blood lead levels in these individuals uh, ranged from 16 micrograms per deciliter to 259 micrograms per deciliter. Uh, the median of this particular group uh, was 67 micrograms per deciliter, well over uh, toxic indicators. Uh, typically, uh, an action level for blood lead in children is 10 micrograms per deciliter and we worry about acute toxicosis uh, in, with values uh, in excess of 40 micrograms per deciliter. Well, as it turns out, they were using uh, used automobile radiators as condensers in their stills. These uh, uh, stills then, uh, because of the heat and because of the uh, potential acidity of what they were distilling, actually leached significant amounts of lead out of the soldering in the particular radiators they were using. Uh, in their moonshine operations. Seven patients uh, required hospitalization for 48 hours or longer, some as long as 18 days. Three of the uh, patients received chelation therapy. Uh, the initial uh, blood lead levels in those individuals were 67, 228, and 259 micrograms per deciliter. These are very high numbers all. Um, one of the patients, uh, actually the one who had the lowest level, actually did die uh, and succumbed to uh, this particular toxicity. Uh, and there was an alcohol uh, withdrawal symptom, sim uh, symptomology uh, and some aspiration pneumonia associated with that in terms of complications. Um, the individuals involved in this reported moonshine ingestion ranging from about two-tenths of a liter to one and a half liters uh, per day, uh, significant alcohol consumption all. Uh, the lead contents of the specimens of moonshine uh, that were confiscated uh, nearby um, actually contained about 7,000 parts per million or uh, 7,000 parts per billion to 9,000, 10,000 parts uh, per billion. So about uh, uh, 10, uh, uh, 7 to 10 parts per million or milligrams per liter. Uh, and the, uh, in terms of looking from an epidemiological perspective about other sources of lead, uh, there was a very limited lead exposure through normal drinking water uh, in the county. What they did in terms of a retrospective epidemiological analysis, trying to do dose reconstruction, they found that uh, consumption of about a half a liter a day of this moonshine containing the higher level, approximately uh, 10 uh, parts per million, 
would result in a steady state blood lead level of about uh, 190 micrograms per deciliter. Uh, significant exposure, significant toxicity, a very unfortunate event uh, in terms of uh, lead toxicosis in a, a small cluster. Well, our next step, we've talked about biotransformation. Uh, our next step is, uh, because all of this was a setup for elimination, is to look at the primary routes of elimination of toxicants. These include urinary elimination, fecal elimination, and respiratory elimination. We have some other potential uh, routes of elimination, obviously, uh, in our saliva. Uh, we can sweat out uh, toxicants. Uh, some of you who have uh, eat very spicy food, uh, you may not smell it, but others will smell your sweat and sometimes smell some of the residue of the very pungent uh, odors involved in the spices that you eat that come out in your sweat. Uh, we can have uh, a uh, elimination of toxicants uh, through milk uh, and mammary gland transfer. We do have a barrier there, but we also have the potential to cross that barrier especially for more water-soluble toxicants. Any sort of uh, tissue that we have that is uh, continuously growing, such as nails, hair, or skin, have the potential to uh, sequester in some uh, level uh, toxicants. And because we shed um, those uh, tissues, uh, we have the ability to eliminate uh, some, some element of the uh, uh, potential toxicant. Uh, hair has been used as a time-based record of intoxication for stable inorganic toxicants such as lead or mercury. Uh, it's not particularly accurate, uh, but it has been used in analysis, uh, uh, especially retrospective analysis, of uh, long-term or chronic exposure uh, to some uh, example heavy metals. We can also find uh, uh, some in the cerebral spinal fluid in terms of the pathway of elimination. Not that we eliminate CSF directly, but it will then join as terms of the part of the fluid pathway uh, finally being eliminated through the kidneys. The kidneys are probably the most important organ when we're talking uh, about elimination, and so we'll spend a few slides here talking about uh, kidney physiology uh, on a macro uh, basis and also on a uh, cellular uh, or a, an organelle basis in terms of how kidneys actually work to filter our blood. Uh, as it turns out, uh, a kidney will produce about 45 gallons of filtrate per day uh, in an adult human. So this is a pretty active organ. It's got very high blood flow. We'll talk about blood flow to relative organs next time. But we have uh, in this particular organ uh, parenchymal uh, cells, all of the stuff inside uh, essentially this uh, water balloon, uh, this active water balloon organ. Um, and the reason we have a, an outsourced side um, uh, tissue, uh, inside this uh, containing tissue we have uh, a uh, a primary set of uh, active uh, substructures in what's referred to as the renal cortex. Uh, this is where most of the filtration happens. The renal cortex is made up of uh, subunits referred to as nephrons. These nephrons are individual uh, filtering assemblies. Uh, they drain from the outside in. You can see that we are highly vascularized in the outer part of the cortex. 
as we descend down towards the center part of the uh, kidney, uh, we have what is referred to as the renal medulla. The fluid exchange happens primarily in the, uh, from the blood to the nephrons in the exterior parts of the kidney. We have the filtrate uh, that then is transported uh, through the renal medulla. There is some exchange reactions, membrane uh, that go on uh, in the renal medulla. Finally, uh, there is some draining uh, into uh, the various papillas and the calyx, uh, draining out into the ureter uh, for storage uh, in the bladder uh, before the next time you urinate. Well, we can look at that, uh, and this is, uh, again, a, uh, a kitchen top sort of uh, uh, dissection that you all can do with uh, uh, some tissues you, you get from the grocery store. This, in fact, is a uh, bovine kidney. Uh, and again, the, from our cartoon, the renal cortex on the outside, this is highly vascularized out here. And so this is where the blood uh, is exchanged and the primary filtration. The renal medulla takes the filtrate. There is some reabsorption that happens, but primarily it shuttles uh, the processed filtrate and collects it, and we collect it down into the ureter. And so it's an outside infiltration. Uh, we have two kidneys, so we have a little bit of backup in terms of our process. We do quite well in terms of asking our kidneys uh, to uh, process uh, twice as much. These are very talented organs. Uh, they have some other uh, aspects in terms of glandular function and adrenal glands that exist in, in the kidneys in terms of hormonal development. Uh, these are uh, incredibly talented organisms, but because uh, they are filtering out, in some cases, toxicants uh, and sometimes bioactive uh, uh, products of intoxication, whether it be metabolites or primary toxicants, there is the potential for tissue damage. We'll talk about that tissue damage next lecture when we talk about target organ toxicity. This cartoon uh, helps us take a look at uh, the actual actions and activity of an uh, individual nephron. This is the renal filtration microstructure. Uh, it's fairly complicated, but if you break it down into its substructure, you find that it is wonderfully glorious in its filtration capacity. It filters uh, not only on a size basis, like the coffee ground paper filter that you use to drink your morning coffee, but we also have membrane filtration and we have membrane reabsorption happening. And this helps us filter out uh, or remove uh, materials but also establish a hydrostatic or an osmotic balance uh, between very important nutrients, glucose, for example, uh, potassium, for example. Uh, it allows us to clean the fluids, uh, but retain those nutrients that we need that are available in our bloodstream. Again, what you find is that we have um, uh, a fairly highly vascularized uh, uh, unit here uh, in terms of blood flow. Uh, the blood comes into a primary area referred to uh, as uh, the glomerulus, uh, which is encased in what's referred to as the Bowman's capsule. And this is a, uh, a uh, relationship of the, uh, the small uh, uh, capillaries in there turning into the Bowman's capsule, which in fact uh, has uh, in the glomerulus uh, uh, actual physical pores. Uh, these pores are on the order of 40 angstroms. 
Uh, 40 angstroms is a pretty good size pore, but it's not overly large, and so what you actually have there is the ability to retain in the blood larger molecules such as protein. Uh, you probably all know that finding protein in your urine is not a good thing, and so what that typically means is that these pores have been damaged, uh, they are larger than 40 angstroms, and allowing for larger molecules to actually escape into the filtrate. So the first stage is actually like your coffee ground filter uh, allows the particles, the larger molecules, to be retained in the blood, but it allows small particles uh, and uh, solubles uh, to actually enter uh, the Bowman's capsule here uh, and allow to uh, start down the pathway of what is referred to as the proximal convoluted tubule. What you can see here is that we have a pathway, and so we've got the filtrate that now exits uh, from uh, the uh, glomerulus in here, this, this uh, membrane, uh, this perforated membrane. And now, on one side, we have uh, hydrostatic pressure, right? Uh, so we've got blood pressure on one side of the membrane, and so we do have the ability to push things through uh, the pores and through the membrane uh, uh, into the uh, capsule. The capsule will drain into the proximal convoluted tubule, uh, convoluted, lots of surface area, lots of twists and turns here in terms of a long pathway, a fairly reasonable uh, retention time as uh, your urine filtrate, uh, your high concentration urine filtrate. And so at this point in time, we've actually not done much other than a physical filtration, pore-based filtration with a little bit of membrane action uh, in the glomerulus. But what happens is, uh, in the proximal tubule, there is the opportunity for membrane reabsorption uh, and transport, uh, and we'll talk about uh, the directions and the important molecules there as it continues its pathway down. We do have some uh, vascularized sections, for example, the loop of Henle here. And then we finally get to the distal convoluted tubule, and we do get some reabsorption effects back here, some water balance in terms of membrane transport from one side of this uh, back into the capillaries. And finally, we have uh, drainage as we start progressing down the renal cortex, down to the renal medulla, and finally uh, into the drainage uh, of the kidney uh, into the bladder. This particular histograph actually shows you uh, a little bit of what a two-dimensional representation of uh, the glomerulus uh, in a nephron looks like. Uh, remember, this is a two-dimensional view, and in this particular representation, we're actually looking uh, down, for example, uh, in these tubules. Uh, as you can see, these are actually looking at a cross-section of the cucumber if we're looking at uh, these long tubes we're looking at it crosswise. And so you can see these tubules, you can see the glomerulus. Uh, this is uh, uh, lots of different uh, convoluted pathways here. Uh, you can't, uh, in this particular magnification, see 40 angstroms in terms of the perforations in here. Um, but you can see in terms of the Bowman's capsule, uh, the fact that there can be filtrate that collects in here that starts into the process direction through the proximal uh, tubules and finally to the distal tubules prior to elimination. 
In terms of the processes of urinary excretion, there are three fundamental processes that happen in a nephron. They include glomular filtration. It is followed by tubular secretion and then followed by tubular reabsorption. This cartoon simplifies uh, what a nephron does, and it gives us the three colors of where these different processes happen. Orange is glomular filtration, uh, kind of a reddish orange. Uh, a lighter orange is tubular reabsorption, and this green-yellow is tubular secretion. So if we see here in the glomerulus uh, that we have active blood flow uh, that is uh, coming into the glomerulus, there is a filtration that happens. Uh, in this filtration, we have small molecules, glucose amino acids, uh, minerals, and water that actually get filtered out. This is the 45 gallons per day of filtrate that gets processed. Uh, it enters the proximal uh, tubule. And in the proximal tubule, we then get a membrane rebalancing. Uh, in this, uh, this uh, membrane rebalancing, uh, about 99% of that water is reabsorbed. So on a daily basis, we only have about 1% of the fluid that's processed through the kidneys actually being eliminated through your urine stream. What we find uh, in this uh, secretion process, this filtrate is resecreted back across the membrane, uh, back into the capillaries uh, that surround that. And so what happens is water it transports across that membrane, glucose, amino acids, uh, some of those small proteins and minerals that have gone through the glomerular filtration. Further on down, in terms of the distal part of the uh, uh, nephron, uh, we find that we have a tubular, uh, a I'm sorry, tubular reabsorption process. So we went from tubular secretion in this orange range down here into the yellow green into the tubular reabsorption. Uh, what happens here is uh, there's a balancing. Uh, nearly all the water um, uh, has been transported out. There's some balancing and reabsorption of additional uh, ammonia and various creatinine and various uh, metabolic byproducts. That, that occur in terms of membrane transport into the distal tubule. Uh, we find that secretion in the upper parts in the proximal tubule is primarily polarity-based. Uh, we find that it's an active transport mechanism. Uh, there are separate systems uh, for acid and uh, base transport. Uh, down here in the distal tubule, we find that uh, this is more of a passive membrane osmotic pressure sort of transport system. Uh, we find that uh, the water, the glucose, the, the amino acids are all uh, balanced throughout uh, the uh, tubules uh, in terms of uh, prior to the collection uh, in the efferent uh, uh, parts of the nephron. Uh, when we have a disruption of the kidney filtration, we typically will find this early on in clinical presentation of loss of water balance, water retention, if you will. Uh, because of the damaged membrane, we don't exactly get that water balance that we need to sustain life. Uh, kidney failure uh, can be uh, severely uh, uh, damaging to other organs in terms of water imbalance uh, and the accumulation of metabolic products uh, in the blood plasma. The next uh, route of elimination uh, that we'll talk about, but we'll only talk about it briefly because it's a fairly simple, is uh, that of uh, fecal uh, excretion. The active transport of toxicant metabolic products or primary toxicants is through excretion in bile uh, directly into the intestine. 
And so we have active transport of a toxicant, uh, parent and or metabolites, uh, with uh, the emulsified bile acids and the fat that uh, uh, come to us. Uh, we've talked about the fact, and we'll talk about uh, liver physiology a little bit more next time in target organ toxicity. Uh, but uh, in the liver, uh, we actually have a collection of uh, um, bile acids in the gallbladder that allows for uh, aid in digestion of fats. But we have active secretion of bile acids and these metabolic products in our bile duct. That bile duct is just south of the duodenum uh, in the intestinal tract. Uh, we've talked about enterohepatic recirculation because of the fact that um, we have this digestive system here in the small intestine. Uh, we have a high degree of blood flow. The portal vein actually transports a high amount of this blood flow uh, for the presentation of nutrients uh, to the liver. And because we've got the potential here of this north and then south uh, uh, recirculation, that toxicants that are presented that come down through the dietary tract, uh, the gastrointestinal tract, actually can be processed here. The parent compound or the metabolic product can be reabsorbed and cycled through. Again, the cartoon on the website, the animation that is, shows you enterohepatic uh, recirculation. Uh, what we find in terms of uh, the types of molecules uh, sometimes these are highly soluble phase two metabolites, large and ionized, uh, that are present in, in the bile duct. Uh, we find it directly can be uh, processed by excretion uh, into the lumen of the GI tract uh, just through blood transport mechanisms across the membrane. This will be a direct diffusion process uh, from the bloodstream into the gastrointestinal tract. Finally, in terms of uh, elimination, uh, we've talked about and briefed you that our lungs, these extremely high surface area, I have a number here of 100 to 140 square meters of surface area and in a typical adult lung. It's a very, very high surface area membrane. Uh, if you have a concentration of a volatile substrate on one side of that membrane, whether it's a toxicant in an inhaled breath or a uh, toxicant or metabolite that has been bioprocessed on the other side of the membrane in terms of within the organism, we have the ability to have passive diffusion across that membrane uh, and uh, potential for respiratory exhalation, respiratory elimination of volatile toxicants. That's the final uh, active uh, uh, elimination uh, mechanism that we're going to talk about today. So what you have now is, uh, I guess, the next steps in the whole sources, pathways, receptors, and controls discussion that we have here in principles of environmental toxicology. Uh, the biotransformation and elimination of toxicants, again, comes to us because of the naturally occurring toxicants that occur to us uh, in our normal uh, daily exposures, environmental exposures, natural product exposures in terms of secondary plant chemical compounds uh, that, that we might be exposed to in our diet, uh, synthetic chemicals that we might be exposed to in our homes, our workplace, or in the natural environment as well. But we have a pretty good set of processes to detoxify this uh, somewhat toxic world around us. 
Next time, what we're going to do is talk about target organ toxicology and how certain toxicants have the ability to affect direct toxicosis on specific organs, specific receptors within organs. Until that time, we'll see you again. Good luck to you.